Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Dad. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Read to you by Pratham Dad. Chapter 18 England under Edward III. So this is how the story goes. If you ever were to ask anybody from England, three famous battles that defined ancient British history, you would always hear it's going to be Cressy, Poitiers and Agincourt, the three main battles between England and France during the Hundred Years. Edward III was the protagonist of these battles. If you remember, Edward III, his father wasn't a very... Good king, Edward II, quite a disastrous one, if you were to ask someone. But Edward III turned out to be quite clever and a bit warmongering. He started his reign around about early 14th century, that carried on right up till the third quarter of the 14th century. And it is during his time that the Hundred Years' War began in 1346. He got rid of Roger Mortimer, who was the lover of his mother, the Queen Isabel of France, and then he took Scotland and looked eastward to set his sights on the French soil. That England, for a long time, has always considered to be its own claim and its own dominion. Now, mind you, of course, because England bears so much of a Norman heritage. This issue was not embellished in any shape or form, but rather thought of as a part of the regal right of dominion. And this is where we continue with the Battle of Cressier. In 1346, where Edward III faces Philip VI, the French king, a formidable foe, with a large contingent of French forces. And this is where we continue. The young prince, assisted by the Earl of Oxford and the Earl of Warwick, led the first division of the English army. Two other great earls led the second, and the king... The third. When the morning dawned, the king received the sacrament and heard prayers, and then, mounted on horseback with a white wand in his hand, rode from company to company and rank to rank, cheering and encouraging both officers and men. Then the whole army breakfasted, each man sitting on the ground where he had stood, and then they remained quietly on the ground with their weapons ready. Up came the French king with all his great force. It was dark and angry weather. There was an eclipse of the sun. There was a thunderstorm accompanied with tremendous rain. The frightened birds flew screaming above the soldiers' heads. A certain captain in the French army advised the French king, who was by no means cheerful, not to begin the battle until the morrow. The king, taking this advice, gave the word to halt. But 
Those behind not understanding it or desiring to be foremost with the rest came pressing on. The roads for a great distance were covered with this immense army and with the common people from the villages were flourishing their rude weapons and making a great noise. Owing to these circumstances, the French army advanced in the greatest confusion, every French lord doing what he liked with his own men and putting out the men of every other French lord. Now, their king relied strongly upon a great body of crossbowmen from Genoa, and these he ordered to the front to begin the battle, on finding that he could not stop it. They shouted once, they shouted twice, they shouted three times to alarm the English archers, but the English would have heard them shout three thousand times and would have never moved. At last, the crossbowmen went forward a little and began to discharge their bolts, upon which the English let fly such a hail of arrows that the Genoese speedily made off, for their crossbows, besides being heavy to carry, required to be wound up with a handle and consequently took time to reload. The English, on the other hand, could discharge their arrows almost as fast as the arrows could fly. When the French king saw the Genoese turning, he cried out to his men to kill those scoundrels who were doing harm instead of service. This increased the confusion. Meanwhile, the English archers, continuing to shoot as fast ever, shot down great numbers of the French soldiers and knights, whom certain sly Cornishmen and Welshmen from the English army creeping along the ground dispatched with great knives. The prince and his division were at this time so hard-pressed that the Earl of Warwick sent a message to the king, who was overlooking the battle from a windmill, beseeching him to send more aid. Is my son killed? asked the king. No, sire, please God, returned the messenger. Is he wounded? asked the king. No, sire. Is he thrown to the ground? said the king. No, sire, not so, but he is very hard pressed. Then, said the king, go back to those who sent you and tell them that I shall send no aid, because I set my heart upon my son proving himself this day a brave knight, and because I am resolved, please God, that the honour of a great victory shall be his. These bold words, being reported to the prince and his division, so raised their spirits that they fought better than ever. The king of France charged gallantly with his men many times, but was of no use. Night closing in, his horse was killed under him by an English arrow, and knights and nobles who had clustered thick about him early in the day were now completely scattered. At last, some of his few remaining followers led him off the field by force, since he would not retire of himself, and they journeyed away to Amiens. The victorious English, lighting their watchfires, made merry on the field, and the king, riding to meet his gallant son, 
took him in his arms, kissed him and told him that he had acted nobly and proved himself worthy of the day and of the crown. While it was yet night, King Edward was hardly aware of the great victory he had gained. But next day, it was discovered that eleven princes, twelve hundred knights, and thirty thousand common men lay dead upon the French side. Among those were the King of Bohemia, an old blind man who, having been told that his son was wounded in the battle and that no force could stand against the Black Prince, called to him two knights, put himself on a horseback between them, fastened the three bridles together and dashed in among the English, where he was presently slain. He bore as his crest three white ostrich feathers with the motto, Ik Dien, signifying in English, I serve. This crest and motto were taken by the Prince of Wales in remembrance of that famous day, and have been borne by the Prince of Wales ever since. Five days after this great battle, the king laid siege to Calais. This siege ever afterwards memorable, lasted nearly a year. In order to starve the inhabitants out, King Edward built so many wooden houses for the lodgings of his troops that it is said that their quarters looked like a second Calais, suddenly sprung around the first. Early in the siege, the governor of the town drove out what he called the useless mutts, to a number of 1,700 persons, men and women, young and old. King Edward allowed them to pass through his lines and even fed them and dismissed them with money, but later in the siege he was not so merciful. 500 more who were afterwards driven out, dying of starvation and misery. The garrison was so hard-pressed at last that they sent a letter to King Philip telling him that they had eaten all the horses, all the dogs and all the rats and mice that could be found in the place and that if he did not relieve them, they must either surrender to the English or eat one another. Philip made one effort to give them relief but they were so hemmed in by the English power that he could not succeed and was fain to leave the place. Upon this, they hoisted the English flag and surrendered to King Edward. Tell your general, said he to the humble messengers who came out of the town, that I require to have sent here six of the most distinguished citizens, bare-legged and in their shirts with ropes about their necks, and let those six men bring with them the keys of the castle and the town. When the governor of Calais related this to the people in the marketplace, there was great weeping and distress, in the midst of which one worthy citizen named Eustace de Saupier rose up and said that if the six men required were not sacrificed, the whole population would be. Therefore, he offered himself as the first. Encouraged by this bright example, 
five other worthy citizens rose up one after another and offered themselves to save the rest. The governor, who was too badly wounded to be able to walk, mounted a poor old horse that had not been eaten and conducted these good men to the gate while all the people cried and mourned. Edward received them wrathfully and ordered their heads of the whole six to be struck off. However, the good queen fell upon her knees and besought the king to give them up to her. The king replied, I wish you had been somewhere else, but I cannot refuse you. So she had them properly dressed, made a feast for them, and sent them back with a handsome present to the great rejoicing of the whole camp. I hope the people of Calais loved the daughter to whom she gave birth soon afterwards, for her gentle mother's sake. Now came that terrible disease, the plague into Europe, hurrying from the heart of China and killed the wretched people, especially the poor, in such enormous numbers that one half of the inhabitants of England are related to have died of it. It killed the cattle in great numbers too, and so few working men remained alive that there were not enough left to till the ground. After eight years of differing and quarrelling, the Prince of Wales again invaded France with an army of 60,000 men. He went through the south of the country, burning and plundering wheresoever he went, like his father, who had still the Scottish war upon his hands, did the like in Scotland, but was harassed and worried in his retreat from that country by the Scottish men, who repaid his cruelties with interest. The French King Philip was now dead and was succeeded by his son John. The Black Prince, called by that name from the colour of the armour he wore to set off his fair complexion, continuing to burn and destroy in France, roused John into determined opposition and so cruel had the Black Prince been in his campaign, and so severe French effort, that he could not find one who, for love or money or the fear of death, could tell him what the French king was doing or where he was. Thus it happened that he came upon the French king's forces all of a sudden near the town of Poitiers, and found that the whole neighbouring country was occupied by a vast French army. God help us, said the Black Prince. We must make the best of it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.